where you guys can turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. We're kicking off a short series, a new series. We're going to be looking at, for the next three weeks, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're getting ready for Easter rather than just take one Sunday, Easter Sunday, to talk about Easter kind of stuff. Uh, We're going to spread it out over three weeks. We're going to look in detail at Jesus, at who he is, at what he did on the cross and, and in the resurrection so that we can more accurately worship him. We're going to look at who he was and at the meaning and significance of his death and resurrection so that we can respond to Easter properly. So we can really worship Jesus deeply this Easter season. And as we spend these next three weeks looking at his life, death, and resurrection, we're going to focus on his final week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. It's often called the Passion Week. That's where we're going to focus um, in our time uh, over the next few, few Sundays. And if you want to understand Jesus' final week, kind of the events of his final week. Let me illustrate it to you by telling you about the first date I had in college. Here when I said A&M. First date I went on, I waited a long time. I didn't go on a first date until I think junior or senior year. And this date, it started really well. Started really on a very high note. Um, I, I, first of all, the girl said yes. So that was, that's pretty huge for me. Um, And she was a great Christian girl, really nice Christian girl. And she said yes. So that was good. And so um, I washed my car. I cleaned my car inside and out. And I dressed up in my, my best suit and tie. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm looking pretty good, at least in, in my opinion. And I pick her up and I tell her I've got reservations at Cafe Excel. And then I got great seats for a musical at Rudder that you really want to see. So I'm feeling really good about this date. Starts on a really high note, uh, but then it goes downhill very, very fast because we go to Cafe Excel and we have dinner and guess what I forget to do? I forget to pray. And when you have asked out uh, a really solid, studly Christian girl and you forget to pray, that's like a five-star blunder. There's no way to recover that. I realized about halfway through the food that I forgot to pray and I'm just like, what do I do now? I've eaten my fish. Do I stop and pray and admit my failure? I don't know. And so um, my excitement is going down because I feel like I've I've just completely blown it. We go to the play and the play is good. Um, But the only place I could find a park close to Rudder was under the trees at the rec center. And if you did not know, you should never park under the trees at the rec center ever, but especially on a date because we go to the play and we come back and my beautiful washed car is now covered bumper to bumper in bird poop. The entire car, completely covered. So thick is this, is this bird poop that you can smell it 30 feet away. Like we're about to lose our fancy dinner because it smells so bad. And I go up and I open the door for her and I'm getting it all over my hands and, and she gets in and I go around to my side and I realize not only does it smell, but now I can't see out of my car. I can't see out of the windows. I got to try to scrape them clean. And I'm trying to recover the evening because it's just gone downhill. And so I think, well, it's early. So would you like to go out for dessert? nah, she says, really just want to, want to go home. And so I said, okay, well, we'll take a rain check on dessert. And guess what? That's, that's the rain check that she never cashed in. I, I never got another date with that girl because it started great, but it ended tragically. Horrible date at the end. And that is the overall storyline, the arc of Jesus's final week. It begins in triumph and it ends in tragedy. So look with me. We're going to look at the beginning and the end of Jesus's last week, his final week, as it takes this 180 degree turn from triumph to tragedy. It begins in triumph. Look with me, Matthew 21, starting in verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. 
and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? So Jesus' final week, the Passion Week, it begins in triumph as his disciples worship him. His disciples celebrate Jesus as he's coming into the city. He's coming in through the eastern gate. It's the gate of the, of the priests, the gate of the kings, the gate of honor. He's coming into the city, and his disciples are worshiping and celebrating him. They're, they're taking their cloaks off and laying them on the ground as, as his colt walks over them. Jesus is entering the city like a conquering hero. The closest equivalent I can think of today would be a ticker tape parade. A huge ticker tape parade celebrating some famous person for something great they have done. That's what's going on in Jerusalem as Jesus enters the city in triumph. They are celebrating him. It's like Caesar marching into Rome or, or Brangelina walking the red carpet at the Oscars. Everybody's watching. Everybody's looking. They are craning their necks to catch a glimpse of this guy named Jesus. So the week begins in triumph as his disciples worship and adore him. So much so, it's such a party that the whole city is stirred up. But the week takes a 180 degree turn. What begins in triumph ends in tragedy. Skip to chapter 27, Matthew 27. Let's look at how the final week of Jesus' life ends. Matthew 27, starting in verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. The week that began in triumph ends in tragedy. As the Romans and the Pharisees and the crowds condemn Jesus. And just to give you some context here, the first passage we read, the beginning of the week, that's Monday. Monday of the Passion Week. This, what we just read, is Friday. So from Monday to Friday, Jesus' life has turned 180 degrees. On Monday, he is celebrated, worshipped, and adored by his disciples. On Friday, he is condemned and executed by the Romans, the Pharisees, and the crowds. Now you know, next week, he's going to rise from the dead. First day of the next week. But the final week itself, the Passion Week, don't, don't miss that incredible tragedy that the one who was celebrated by his disciples like a conquering king is now condemned and executed by the Pharisees and, and crowds and Romans. Now, how do you explain those radically different reactions to Jesus? On Monday, his disciples are worshiping him. On Friday, the Pharisees are condemning and executing him. How do you explain those radically different reactions to this guy named Jesus? Well, uh, the, the way that you explain it is to look at the question that was at the end of the first passage we read. Here's the verse again, Matthew 21, 10. When he, that is Jesus, had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? Who is this? Everything in the life of Jesus hinges on that question. Who is this man? Who is this man named Jesus? The disciples, the Pharisees, the crowds, the Romans, their answer to that question determines how they responded to Jesus. 
whether they gave him worship or crucified him, depended on how they answered that question and their choice either to worship him or crucify him. That shapes the rest of human history and that brings them either eternal blessing from God or eternal wrath. So really significant question here. Actually, you may not realize this, but this is the question of questions in human life. This is the most important question that any person, that any of us will ever answer. Who is this man named Jesus? Because your eternity hinges on your answer to that question. How you answer that question, who is this man named Jesus? That determines what you do in this life and where you go in the next life. This is the most important question every person faces. Who is this man named Jesus? How did the Romans, the Pharisees, and the crowds answer that question? Well, they had been listening to Jesus for a while by now. His ministry was three years going at this point. So they had heard Jesus make some some pretty big claims by this point. They had heard him claim to have kingly authority. They had seen him collect followers and worshipers. They heard him talk as if he had divine authority. And yet they look at one another and think, man, who's this guy who claims to have divine authority? He looks like a common man. Not only like that, he looks like a poor man from a podunk town called Nazareth. There is no way this guy could be divine. And for a common man, a nobody, to claim divine authority to the Pharisees, that was blasphemy. So when they look at Jesus, they see a blasphemer. That's who Jesus is. He's a liar to the Pharisees. And what is the condemnation of blasphemy according to the Jewish law? Death. That's the first commandment. You break the first commandment, you die. So the Pharisees, they got to put Jesus to death. Now, the Romans, they could care less about blasphemy. They don't care about that. But what they do care about is law and order. And, and Jesus, he was an agitator. He was stirring people up. The whole city is in an uproar. The Romans don't like that. They want everything to be stable. And so they acquiesce to the Pharisees and together they crucify Jesus. And what we need to understand is that if the Pharisees and the Romans were right about Jesus, if he was indeed a liar, a blasphemer, an agitator, then by the laws of the first century, Jesus got what he deserved on the cross. Their reaction to him was entirely reasonable if Jesus was indeed a liar, a blasphemer, and an agitator. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then he deserved to die on the cross. And, and, and what we have to understand as we think about this is we've got to realize there is no middle ground with Jesus. He doesn't leave you any middle ground. Either he is who he said he was or he wasn't. And if he doesn't, then he deserves to die on the cross as a common criminal. So the Romans, the Pharisees, and the crowds, they looked at Jesus and concluded that this man is a liar who deserved to die. What about the disciples? Who did the disciples say that Jesus was? Who did they see this man to be? What did they think about him that led them to worship? Well, to answer that question, who is Jesus from the disciples' perspective, we're going to go back to the beginning of Jesus' story. We're going to go back to John chapter 1. So turn to John chapter 1. We're going to see how John introduces us to Jesus. He's going to help us understand who Jesus is according to the disciples. Now, you could go to any of the four Gospels to figure out who the disciples thought Jesus was, but, but John gives us the greatest introduction, the greatest uh, introduction to this man named Jesus. He walks us through four significant titles 
in John chapter 1. Four significant titles from the Old Testament that the disciples attribute to Jesus. So he, he gives us this great comprehensive introduction to this man named Jesus right here in chapter 1. So uh, let's jump in. Let's look at these four titles that John gives to Jesus in chapter 1. The first title is right in the first verse of the book. Look with me at John 1.1. 1, 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John tells us that Jesus is the word. That's the first title he gives. Jesus is the word of God. Uh, That's kind kind of a strange title, isn't it? Kind of an unusual thing to call someone. Jesus is the word. It's a significant title. Actually, this is the biggest title of them all, but it's kind of strange to us. What does that mean that Jesus is the word? Uh, the word word in Greek is, is logos. And logos usually refers to just human speech, to speech or words you write down on paper to communicate to other people. That's, that's what it means. Um, the Jews notice as they read the Old Testament that there's lots of references to the word of God in the Old Testament. And, and as they looked at those, those references to the word of God, they noticed that God's words are not like our words. Our words are just sounds we make that facilitate communication. But God's words are different. God's words have power. God's words have authority. Think about Genesis 1. God speaks and the universe pops into existence. God speaks the sun and moon and stars into existence. He he speaks and life is created. God's words have power to create. They also have power to legislate. God speaks the Mosaic law and all of a sudden the entire human race becomes morally, legally accountable to God. When humanity obeys the law, then God's words bless them. When they disobey, God's words curse them. God's words reveal truth to us. God's words bring us life. God's words deliver us from sin. As the Jews read their Old Testament, they realized that God's words, they were so powerful, so authoritative, that it was as, it was as if they had life in and of themselves. It was as if God could sit in heaven and speak words that would descend to earth and accomplish all that he wanted done. Well, it's that idea that forms a foundation for this incredible mystery that John reveals to us in chapter one. He tells us that Jesus himself is God's ultimate word. Jesus is the ultimate, infinitely powerful and authoritative speech revelation of God taking on human flesh, living among us to reveal God's identity and power to us. Jesus is God's ultimate word wrapped up in human flesh. And it's interesting as John describes this word, notice the things he says, incredibly radical things, big, big things. Starting in verse one, he tells us that the word is God, distinct from God, yet also God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Verse three, it's through the word that creation was made. Jesus is the one who actually created the universe. God the Father wanted it done, but Jesus is the one who did it. 
It's through Jesus that, boom, the universe comes into existence. Verse 4, it's Jesus who gives life. It's Jesus who creates light. Verse 14, this word of God who is equally glorious to God the Father took on human flesh. Why? Verse 18, to reveal God to us. To be God's ultimate speech, his ultimate revelation of truth to the human race. You cannot overstate the significance of this title. When they say that Jesus is the word, they mean Jesus is God. He is God's speech, God's power, God's authority, wrapped in human flesh, the God-man come to earth to fulfill all that God desires. So the first title, word, it's emphasizing Jesus' power and authority. The second title emphasizes the exact opposite. Exact opposite. Look with me uh, further down in the chapter, looking at verse 29. Skip down to verse 29. It says, The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second title that John gives us for Jesus is the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. That's also a strange title to give to Jesus. Lamb. Okay, so if you think of a a lamb grows up into a sheep, a sheep is a pretty weak animal. If you know anything about sheep, they're really vulnerable. You have to protect them. You've got to put a a fence around them or have a shepherd with them because just about anything can kill them. And a lamb is is the weaker version. It's the baby sheep. And so a lamb is vulnerable to any. A lamb is a snack for anything with teeth. A big bird can eat a lamb. They're incredibly vulnerable, um, incredibly innocent. My kids have tons of stuffed animals, but the most numerous stuffed animal they have is a lamb because it's so soft. It looks so cute and adorable. You just want to snuggle it. There's no string there. There's no power there. So it makes you ask, why would John attribute the creator of the universe with this soft, adorable, cute, little, innocent lamb? What's the connection there? Well, it takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus. The nation of Israel was uh, entrapped in slavery. They were enslaved in Egypt. God sent Moses to deliver them. The Egyptians weren't into that. Pharaoh said no. And so God shows up with all these plagues, brings some wrath upon the Egyptians. And the final plague was, was the angel of death who would come and put to death the firstborn son of every family. But God delivered the Israelite families. He told them, go take a lamb a spotless, innocent little lamb, sacrifice it and put the blood of that lamb over your doorpost and that will save your family. That will deliver you from my wrath. Well, that idea, that image gets picked up throughout the Old Testament. And as Israel's sins grow throughout the Old Testament, God begins to promise one ultimate lamb, one perfect, spotless, divine lamb who would come and be the sacrifice for all human sin, who would finally release the human race from God's wrath. You see that promise in multiple places, but the most famous of which is Isaiah. Isaiah 53. If you're looking for a good devotion for Easter week, write down Isaiah 53. Incredible place to spend time as you contemplate Easter. Here's what Isaiah says. Chapter 53, verses 6 and 7. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. What Isaiah is telling us is is to expect that God will send 
This perfect lamb, spotless lamb, innocent, never have sinned. And he will take upon himself all of our iniquities, all of our sins, all the bad things you have done in the past, in the present, and in the future. God will lay upon this cute, adorable little lamb and he will take your sin for you. He will die in your place. And what John is saying in chapter one is that's Jesus. He is the lamb whom God promised who would take all of your sin upon himself and die as your sacrifice so that you could be forgiven, so that your sins could be wiped away. So Jesus is the word that emphasizes his awesome, absolute power, and he is the lamb that emphasizes his innocent sacrifice for sin. Third title that God gives us, for Jesus here in John chapter one uh, is found a little further down in the chapter. Look at verse 41. He says, he found first, this is Andrew, found first his own brother, Simon, that's Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. The third title that John gives us for Jesus is he is the, the Christ, that is the Messiah. And I've said this to you guys multiple times before. When you say Jesus Christ, Christ is not the guy's last name. Christ is is his title. So the, the Catholic Church, they elected a new pope this week, Pope Francis. You know, pope is not his first name. That's not the guy's, that's his title, his position of authority. So it is with Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ is his position of authority, his position of power, his title. Okay, so what does it mean to be Christ? Well, in Greek, it's Christ. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. Same word, just translated in different languages. And Messiah, the idea of that word in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, Messiah was a man anointed with power by God to lead his people. So a man anointed by God to lead God's people. Often they were actually literally anointed with oil on their head. And and there were actually many messiahs in the Old Testament. The kings were messiahs. The priests were messiahs. The prophets were messiahs. They were anointed by God to lead God's people. The problem was the vast majority of them proved to be poor messiahs. The vast majority of the messiahs with lowercase m's through the Old Testament proved to be unfaithful. They served themselves. They disobeyed God. They ran after other gods. And so uh, the nation needed someone who would come deliver them. After the Messiahs had failed, Israel, the people of God, ended up in exile. They ended up kicked off the promised land. And God promised in that moment of exile to send one more Messiah. One more ultimate Messiah, Messiah with a capital M. One guy who would come and finally deliver Israel from judgment and move them into blessing. One promised once and for all Messiah who would fulfill all of God's promises to the nation of Israel. Messiah with a capital M would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, everything God had promised to Israel, he would bring. And so when Jesus is called the Christ or the Messiah, what we're saying is that he is God's anointed fulfiller of all the promises, all of the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel. This is the guy who would fulfill them, finally, for the people of Israel. Now, this is another title that you cannot overstate the significance of, especially to a first century Jew, because a first century Jew had been waiting for 2,000 years for God to fulfill his promises, for God to fulfill all that was promised all the way back to Abraham. You've been waiting your entire life, and all of a sudden a guy shows up and people are calling him Messiah. You're going to pay attention to that. 
That's going to really excite you because it means that all of your hopes and dreams are about to be fulfilled. If you want to understand what a first century Jew would think when, when someone was called Messiah, it's, it's like a, a married couple who has been trying to have children without any success. So an infertile couple, they have been trying to have children for years and month after month, the tests come back negative. Procedure after procedure come back negative. They're not having any kids. All their friends have kids. Now all their friends are onto their second or third kid and they don't even have one. Month after month, they get a no. And then finally, one morning they pick up the phone. It's the doctor and he says, your blood test came back positive. You're pregnant. How would they feel in that moment? Julie and I were there. We struggled with infertility for a long time. No, 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 month after month. And then finally the doctor calls and tells us the blood test is pregnant. I was driving at the time. I had to pull over. I could not drive safely in that moment because I was so overwhelmed with the thought that all my hopes and dreams are about to be fulfilled. This thing that we've been praying and hoping and trying for years is about to happen. That is how the Jews felt when this guy arrives on the scene who is called the Messiah. Everything they have ever hoped for is about to come true because he is the fulfiller of all of God's promises. Okay, so Jesus is the word, he is the lamb, and he is the Christ. Finally, the fourth title that John gives us for Jesus. Look with me at verse 49. Verse 49, Nathanael answered Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Two titles here that actually mean the same thing, the son of God and the king of Israel. Now, when you hear son of God, what do you think of? You probably think a second member of the Trinity, like God the son. Now, that is what Son of God will come to mean later in the New Testament as God reveals more information about Jesus. But early on in the life of Jesus, all they had to work from is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the title Son of God simply meant king. Those titles are equivalent early in the New Testament. The Son of God was simply the king of Israel. It was common in the ancient world for a nation to think of its king as a son of its God. Because the king represented the people to their God and their God to the people. And so you see throughout the Old Testament that the king is referred to as God's son. Solomon, in the book of Psalms, chapter 2, is called God's son. This is about Solomon, Psalm 2. But as for me, says God, I have installed my king upon Zion, that is Jerusalem, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, says Solomon. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so when Jesus is called the son of God, it means you are the king. You are the king of Israel. And, and the problem in the Old Testament, just like with the Messiah, so with the kings, they had failed. If you read through the Old Testament, you see there's not a lot of good kings. One after the other fails. One after the other gives in to sin. Even the really good kings fell short. Think of David, a man after God's own heart. What did he do? had an affair, and then killed the woman's husband. That's adultery and murder. Even he fell short. King after king fails until finally God brings an end to the line of the kings for a time. He hits pause. There's no more kings for hundreds of years. God sends his nation into exile. And in the midst of that exile, he promises them, I will send you one last king. One last king who will be a king of kings, an eternal king, the once and future king who will bring all of the promises to you, who will lead your nation and the entire world. One eternal king, that is the promised son of God. So when Jesus is called the son of God, the king of Israel in chapter one, they're saying you are the eternal king, the once and future final king promised by God to lead Israel and the entire world forever and ever. 
And so that's what the disciples understand about Jesus, and that is why they worshiped him on the first day of Jesus' final week, because the disciples got it. They understood. This man, he's no liar. He's no blasphemer. He's not an agitator. This man is the word of God. God in human flesh. He is the lamb of God who will die for our sins. He is the Christ, the the promised one who would fulfill all of God's promises to us. He is the king of kings, the eternal king. They understand this about Jesus and so they worship him. If Jesus was not what these four titles declare, if he was lying, if he was deceiving us, then he doesn't deserve the time of day from you. He, He got what he deserved on the cross. But if these titles are true of Jesus, then what the disciples understand is he deserves worship. That is the one and only proper response to a guy for whom this is true. You gotta worship him. He deserves your complete devotion, your complete obedience, your unending worship. If this is true about him, he deserves all of our worship. And so the disciples worship Jesus. They understand that is what he deserves if he was really true in what he said about himself. And we look at the disciples and we look at how they responded in worship and we realize that's, that's what we are to give Jesus as well. If we really believe that he is who he said he was, then the only proper response for us is to worship him like the disciples did. A ticker tape parade for Jesus, telling everybody about Jesus, adoring and being devoted to Jesus. That's what he deserves from us if he is who he said he was. The disciples understood, just like we said earlier, there is no middle ground with Jesus. You can't give Jesus lip service on Sunday. He was not just a good man. He was either a liar who deserved to be crucified or he is our Lord who deserves our unending and complete worship. And so if you want to understand what it means to worship Jesus appropriately, to give him the the complete devotion and unending worship that he deserves, we're going to look at an event that happened right before the Passion Week. Turn to John chapter 12. We're going to look at an event that happened right before Jesus entered Jerusalem triumphantly. We're going to look at this beautiful scene, and we're going to look at this woman named Mary. A young, single woman who is going to teach us what it means to believe and worship Jesus as if these titles are true. He's going to show us what reasonable worship looks like if Jesus is really who he said he was. So look with me at John chapter 12. We're going to look at how Mary worshiped Jesus. We'll start right at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now to understand what Mary does here, to understand this this act of worship as she responds to what she believes to be true about Jesus. You need to know two things about Mary's worship here, about this act. Number one, you gotta know it's incredibly expensive what Mary does here. 
Incredibly expensive nard, this perfume, very rare in the ancient world. Uh, It was actually made not in Israel, but in India. In India, they would take these aromatic herbs and they would crush the roots and stems into this perfume. And they typically sold it by the ounce, a really tiny bottle. She has a whole pound of it, um, many ounces. They would package it in alabaster flasks, which were also very expensive to keep it. Uh, it It was a luxury item, a very expensive item in the ancient world. You would only open it up on really special occasions to put put one or two drops of it on the head of a dignitary. So someone famous comes to your house, you put a drop on their head to honor them. And Mary's going to take the whole thing and break it open. And, and we find out how expensive it is in verse five. Judas Iscariot tells us it's worth 300 denarii. Now one denarii was, was one day's wage in the ancient world. So, so the whole income of your whole day, 300 days, you work six days a week. That means that this flask that she breaks open was worth one year of income. In today's money, we're talking $50,000 is what she takes. And she doesn't take a drop. She doesn't take two drops. She doesn't just pour a little. She takes the whole stinking thing and breaks it and dumps it on Jesus' feet. 50 grand right on his feet. And what makes it even more extravagant is you've got to understand in the ancient world, it was much harder to save money than it is today. When you took out the money that was required for food, lodging, and clothing, they had very, very little left over. And so probably this flask, this one pound of nard, probably represents a person's entire lifetime of savings. This is their retirement account. This is the whole nest egg. This is everything they have broken and poured out in one moment on his feet. So incredibly expensive what she does. The second thing to know about it is it's scandalous. This act... It's quite scandalous. If you look at first century Jewish culture, it was actually very rare for a rabbi to have female disciples, female followers, because in first century Jewish culture, it was not appropriate for a woman to spend time with a man who was not her husband or her family. So it's, it's already inappropriate, but it's made worse by the fact that both of them are single. Jesus is a single guy. Mary is a young single woman. This would simply never be done. She comes in public and sits at his feet. She lets down her hair. That's a big no-no in public for a Jewish woman in the first century. She gets in front of his feet and touches him and rubs, her feet with her, rubs his feet with her hair. That was incredibly scandalous. I think the people in the room are probably looking around at each other feeling really uncomfortable. Man, this is going to be talked about in town. This is just not done. This is scandalous. So with that information in mind, that it was expensive and that it was scandalous, I want you just for a moment to, to stop and imagine that you're in the room. Picture that you're in the room. You're sitting there and you're watching this scene. You're there. Um, you're, you're one of the disciples. The room is full of, of Jesus' male disciples. Um, they're reclining at the table eating dinner and they didn't sit on chairs. Their feet were kind of to the side of them as they recline on the ground and eat. And it's uh, two days before the triumphal entry. So it's Jesus' last week. So you figure they're probably talking about some pretty significant things, pretty major conversation going on. One of Jesus' last meals with his disciples. And, and as you're having this significant conversation with Jesus, and all of these important men, all of a sudden into the room walks this single young girl. And she comes up to Jesus' feet and she kneels. She gets on her knees and she lets down her hair. Whoa, that's weird. And she takes this, this thing. You know, man, that's a retirement account right there. That is 50 grand right there, that, that bask of perfume. Maybe she's going to put one drop on him. No, she breaks it open. And just imagine how the room would fill up with perfume. And this is before perfume was, was prevalent. 
There was hardly any perfume in the world. It was incredibly rare. So you've never smelled in your entire life perfume like that. You imagine this must be what a king's palace smells like because no common man could ever afford the extravagance of a pound of perfume spilled out, a whole lifetime savings in one moment. The room fills up with perfume. You're just overwhelmed with the scent of it. But what really overwhelms you is the offense of what's happening. You are offended by the waste. Mary, that is real money. Mary, that is 50 grand. Mary, that is a whole lifetime of savings that you just wasted on his feet. If you want him to smell good, put a drop on his head. That's all you need. And you wasted all of it. And you're offended not just at the financial waste, but you're offended at the social impropriety. Mary, come on. Young girl, you should know better than this. You're a good Jewish girl here. Mary, you are making Jesus look bad right now. You're making yourself look really bad. What are people going to say, Mary? You, you want to be married one day? You want to have a husband one day? He's going to know about this, about what you're doing right now. This is scandalous, Mary. And you're about to say something. You're about to rebuke her and put her in her place, but you hold your tongue because you think, well, Jesus, man, he's righteous. He's wise. He'll rebuke her. He'll put her in her place. And then what does Jesus do? He commends her. Your offense is replaced by utter shock as he honors her. As he says, Mary, this, this worship that you're doing, this wasteful, scandalous, extravagant worship, it is right. It is proper. It is fitting. What you're doing is exactly right. Why is it right? Because Mary, you get it. Mary, you understand. If I am who I said I am, if these titles are true of me, then Mary, you're the one who gets it. If I am who I said I am, then there is no limit to the worship and devotion that I deserve. Mary is the only one in the room who gets it. It's interesting, when you look at Mary through the Gospels, you realize usually she is the first and only one to get Jesus to really understand Jesus. Mary understands. If Jesus is who we say he is, then there is no limit to the worship he deserves from me. There is no limit to the adoration, the devotion, the sacrifice that he deserves from me. Mary gets it when none of the rest of the disciples do. Jesus actually tells us, he fills in some commentary, what she's doing is not just worship, she is anointing him for death. Mary gets it. She understands that Jesus is the king who will die. He is the king who is the lamb who will sacrifice himself for our sins. Mary alone gets it. It's, it's really shocking. You think about a, a culture that looked down on women. They viewed women to be inferior to men in intellect and in spirituality, and Jesus laughed at that. Yeah, really? Well, here's a, a su- single young woman with no theological training, and she's smarter than all of you fellas because she's the only one who got it. Over and over again through the Gospels, Mary's the only one who got it. And if you want to know why, why did Mary get it when no one else did? It's interesting to ask yourself, every time you see Mary in scriptures, four times, four scenes where Mary is present, she is always in the same place. All four times, Mary's in the same place. Where is it? At Jesus' feet. All four times, she's at Jesus' feet, listening to him and worshiping. Luke chapter 10, Martha's off serving in the kitchen. Mary is at his feet. Jesus says, that's right. John chapter 11, Lazarus dies, Mary falls at his feet. Here, John 12, she's at his feet. Matthew 28, after Jesus rises from the dead, Mary gets right back at his feet, listening and worshiping, listening and worshiping. That's always what she's doing. Why? Because Mary got it. Mary alone got it. 
that if Jesus is who he said he was, he deserves our worship. Mary understood Jesus is either a liar who doesn't deserve the time of day from us, or he is our Lord, our God, our creator, our savior, our king, who deserves our unending worship and complete devotion. Mary understood there is no middle ground with Jesus. There is no small little box of worship that is reasonable to give him. No, he either doesn't deserve anything from you or he deserves everything from you because he's either a liar or he's your Lord. There is no middle with Jesus. Mary got it. She understood that Jesus is the word, the lamb, the Christ, and the king. What I want to leave you with this morning is to ask you, who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that this man named Jesus is? Are you still wrestling with that question? Have you still not made up your mind? You're not sure. Are these titles true? Is this, is this real? Can I really believe that Jesus is God's son, came in human flesh, died for my sins, rose from the dead, is king of the universe? Can I really believe it? If you're wrestling with that, I want to commend you. It's good that you're thinking that through, and I would love to talk to you about that. Or come talk to someone else here, talk to Jason, talk to one of us here at the church. We would love to help you think through the claims of Jesus Christ. We'd love to help you think through his life, think through the evidence for for his death and resurrection. We want to help you wrestle through this because we want you to come to the place that we have come. We believe that those four titles are true. We believe that Jesus is the word of God, took on flesh, our king who willingly died for us. We believe that he died for us so that we could be forgiven, so that by believing in him, we could have eternal life and be with God forever, and we want you to have that too. We want you to know life and peace and joy with God forever through faith in Jesus Christ. So please come talk to me or someone else here. Come talk to us today. We'll walk you through the evidence. We'll walk you through the life of Jesus as you wrestle with who he is. Now, if you're here this morning and you have become persuaded that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that those four titles are true of Jesus, then my question for you is, if you believe it, do you act like it? If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then do you worship him like Mary worshiped him? Do you follow her example of extravagant worship? Do you give him extravagantly of your time? Do you give him time in the morning, at noon, in the evening, in his word, listening to him, listening to what he has to say to you, talking to him through prayer, meditating, memorizing scripture? Are you extravagant with your time as you worship Jesus? Are you extravagant with your stuff? Do you worship him through your money, through your possessions? Do you give freely to Jesus, to his church, to his people? Or you just give a a little bit, a reasonable amount? Are you like Mary, who broke the flask and gave it all? This Easter season, as we spend the next two weeks getting ready for the main event, the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, I want to encourage you over the next two weeks, every day, to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's where I want all of us to be this week and next week. Every day, taking some time to sit at the feet of Jesus. If you need to do that, literally, you can can kneel down by your bed, in your closet, wherever it is. But metaphorically, I want you to sit at his feet listening to him in his word, talking to him through prayer, worshiping him through song, through speech, whatever it is. Spend time at his feet like Mary did. Spend time reflecting on the greatness of Jesus. Spend time thinking about what does it mean if Jesus really is who he said he was? What does that mean for you? How should that affect you? I encourage you over the next two weeks to give Jesus extravagant worship. 
Because if he is who he said he was, then that's what he deserves. Our everything, our all, our complete devotion and unending worship. Let's give him some of that right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We confess in agreement with the book of John that your son, Jesus Christ, is the word of God. He is the all-powerful, infinite, authoritative, revelatory speech of God wrapped in human flesh who came to reveal you to us. And he is your lamb, the lamb of God who came innocent and pure, righteous to die for us, to take all of our sins, past, present, and future upon himself to die, taking our penalty upon himself so that we could be forgiven. And he is our Christ, our Messiah, the promised one who would fulfill all that you have promised. And he is our king, king of kings and Lord of lords who will rule over all of this universe we affirm that all of these things are true about Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, for any person in this room who is still wrestling with that, who is, who is still trying to figure out, can they really believe these things about Jesus? Please help them, Lord. Lead them to truth. Lead them to faith. We pray that you would work um, in their lives and help them over any intellectual objections that they have. Help them to find peace in Jesus. And for all of us who, who do believe that he is who he said he was, I pray, Father, convict us, challenge us, work in our lives and make us a little bit more like Mary, a little bit more willing to sacrifice it all for Jesus, to endure ridicule and public humiliation for the sake of Jesus, to, to give up what we have, to recognize that $50,000 is nothing Compared to what Jesus is worth, I pray that like her, that we would give extravagantly to your son in worship of our time, of our stuff, of our energy in every way that we would worship him and be devoted to him. I pray that over the next two weeks as we prepare for the main event, the resurrection of your son, I pray that each day you would be working on us. I pray that even in the midst of our busyness, of our tasks, of school and work, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand a little bit more clearly how magnificent it is that Jesus, your son, died for us and rose from the dead. I pray that this Easter we would not let this holiday just fly by, but that we would reflect deeply and meaningfully upon the significance of your son. Help us, Lord, we pray, through your spirit, all in the name of your great and marvelous son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.